My name's Jared. If you're a guest with us today, uh, we want to make this the last time you're a guest. Uh, next week, you can be a regular Evergreener, one of the pastors here, and I get to wrap up this two-part series in talking about making every minute uh, missional. You know, uh, musician Prince died a few days ago on April the 21st. Any Prince fans here? Yeah, I appreciate you outing yourself. I, thank you for that. And you can wear purple next week. That's okay. It's absolutely okay. But you know, as uh, remarkable as a musician and entertainer and a genius as Prince was, he did not do planning all that well. Did not leave a will, apparently. A state valued well over $300 million. That estate is going to be in litigation for the next many years, likely the next several decades. Have any of you noticed that a lack of planning sometimes make a mess? Yeah. Maybe you also know that the only thing worse than not planning is poor planning. Maybe you'll identify with this guy. This is just fun. It's corny. It's excellent. It's wonderful. You're going to laugh because I think it's funny. Here we go. This is actually a letter that a guy wrote to a workers' compensation board trying to explain his claim. This is what he said. I'm writing in your response in response to your request for additional information. I put poor planning as the cause of my accident, and you ask for a fuller explanation. Well, I'm a bricklayer. One day, on the day of the accident, I was working on the roof of a new six-story building, and when I finished, I found that I had some bricks left over, which weighed a little over 500 pounds. Rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley, which was attached to the other side of the building, down on the sixth floor. Now, securing the rope at the ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, loaded the bricks in it. Then I went down and tied the rope and held on tightly. You will note that my weight is 175 pounds. <laughs> Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a great rate up the side of the building. Now, about at the third floor, I met the barrel, which was now proceeding downward at an equal impressive speed, and this explains the fractured skull, minor abrasions, and the broken collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep in the pulley. Fortunately... By this time, I'd regained my presence of mind and was able to hold on tightly to the rope in spite of beginning to experience some fairly severe pain. Now, approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Now, devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel weighed about 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight. As you can imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building and in the vicinity of about the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles, broken tooth, and several lacerations on my legs and lower body. Now, the encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of bricks. And fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the pile of bricks in pain and able to move, I again lost my composure and presence of mind, and I let go of the rope. As I lay there watching the empty barrel began to make its descent down, onto me, which explains the two broken legs. I hope this answers your inquiry. Poor planning 
Indeed, poor planning. I don't know what you think about planning. Uh, At my advanced age, I begin wondering whether or not uh, planning too far into the future might not just be entirely presumptuous. Don't vote on that. It'll take all of your energy if you're like me to get your hand up. But have you thought about that? Well, I kind of got a kick in the pants this week because I had lunch with Pearl, Pearl Paft. I think Pearl will be here in the next service. I don't see Pearl in this service. Pearl is in her uh, early to mid-90s. I think she's the oldest regular attending member at Evergreen. And Pearl has, you know, 30 plus years on me. Pearl invited Ann and me to come over to have lunch with her at uh, Cornell Estates. And we suggested some dates. And she said, oh, no, that would be too soon. My calendar's too full. I have to schedule out further in advance. Finally got to have lunch with Pearl. And Bob Pearl is, has a lot of stories which are absolutely wonderful to hear about. Pearl does not live in the past, folks. Her life is full and it's vibrant and she's living life on purpose. She was telling about one of the many things she does is knitting caps. And this year, the caps that are are being knit, half of them are going to go into a sale and that sale is going to produce money given to the fire department to use for toys for tots this Christmas. The other half of the caps are being used for kids who live in foster homes, living life on purpose. I'm not off the hook And unless you're over 94, you aren't either today. I met with a guy this week, a mutual friend had put us together. He owns a business. The friend thought it might be helpful for us to have a conversation. So I asked the guy, what do you want? Now, he's a husband. He's a dad of two kids, ages two and two months. And he said quickly and clearly, I want to be successful. I want to be a successful husband and dad and business owner. I want to be successful. Now, my new friend, as far as I know, still is not a passionate follower of Christ, but I think that he is expressing part of that God-likeness that's stamped on every human spirit that says, I want to succeed. I want to live life in a meaningful and purposeful way. Every day we can make life purposeful. My question for you is, is your life purposeful today? And if it's going to be purposeful, how would you actually know that you hit that mark? So today I want to talk with you about creating a plan for summer 2016 so that every moment can have a mission attached to it. A summer of purpose, a summer of mission. Understanding that life is mysterious and life throws us curves and we don't have a blueprint for the future, but I hope during our talk today that you'll agree with me that planning is better than none at all. Here's the big idea. You'll find it on your uh, handout. You'll also see it on the screen. It says this, with God, as you plan your life and work your plan, you can live with mission and purpose. So live on purpose this summer. Now, I want you to notice the first three phrases. And in fact, on your outline, it's the first four phrases, because you've noticed that I stuttered on your outline. It says, with God, with God. By the way, if you're going to stutter, that's not a bad phrase to repeat right there. Yeah. Don't bother with the rest of the big idea if you don't start with God. He's the one who says about you, I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for calamity to give you a future 
and a hope. So if you're going to plan your life, start with God. And your hope and prayer is that he will give you a hint about some of the plans that he has, and you're moving forward with God. So here's the deal. With God, number two, as you plan your life, number three, and then work your plan, your summer can be purposeful. I want to tell you this morning two stories. We're going to read them out of the Bible. They're contrasting stories. The first of them is about a thoughtless life, and the second, a thoughtful life. And you'll notice two very different outcomes. The thoughtless life comes from Proverbs chapter 24, and the guy in the story is called a sluggard. That's just a good word to have handily. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Now, the problem with the word sluggard is that you can't actually tell anyone that they're a sluggard. It's horrible, but it's a delicious word, unless it's used about you. Between my freshman and sophomore years of college, I was a part of Navigators, and I went to a summer training program. We were in Southern California. We were up in a Christian camp. We were helping with some construction. Navigators, if you haven't heard of them, is a kind of like Campus Crusade for Christ or, uh, or crew uh, on steroids because it comes from a military background. Uh, Kevin, you would really appreciate the navigators. And every morning we got up early, too early for me, but not early enough for one bonehead that was a part of the group that decided we all should get up a little bit earlier. And every morning he would get up and he would march back and forth the front of our bunks and he would yell, get out of bed, you sluggards. I do not have a good association with that term. So anytime I read about sluggards in the Bible, my ears go up and I'm listening because I don't want to be there. Here is the story of a thoughtless life because you'll notice that the behavior of the sluggard was not just that he was kind of lazy, but his behavior that got him into trouble is that he was without sense thoughtless life. Notice what it says. I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed, and I learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to the rest, And poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Wow. So if you don't plan your life with thoughtfulness, there's others that are planning to jump on your calendar and steal it away from you. Now the farm boy in me gets this. Thoughtless farmers have crappy farms. The leader in me gets this metaphorically. A thoughtless life leads to a lousy life. Hmm. Now, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us a very different contrasting story. And to understand this story, you have to kind of dig through the beautiful context of Jewish religious practice that came out of the Old Testament Not a surprise to you that a book in the Bible called Hebrews probably was written to some Hebrews. 
And these, the descendants of Abraham, were Jewish believers and tended to understand what Christ has done for us out of the context of their previous Old Testament religious history. So you'll notice the imagery around this story of what Jesus has done for us and the implications for our life as we read this beautiful passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds and not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Well, just such a rich, rich passage, but I want to get to the heart of the story. So let me just boil it down and summarize it into four big ideas here in this contrasting life of what a thoughtful life looks like. Number one, you in Christ have a new and living way of living. So don't be offended when I tell you you're really different. It's true and it's good. Your life is different because it's new, it's fresh, it's entirely reorganized, and you're expected to reconstitute and reorganize in your life in a way that is a life of following Christ. It is a new way of living. And secondly, it's a way of living that produces life for you instead of death. So here's the contrast. A thoughtless life is one that's old and dead. And the contrast life of thoughtfulness is new and it's life in Christ. Now, what do you do about this new and living way? The first action that we take is that we hold on to something really strong. We hold on to this rope of hope that's been thrown into the future that we can't see at all clearly, but we know that Christ has planned for us, and we throw the rope into the future, and we anchor it on to what we hope for in that future, and we hold on to that rope of hope tightly, just like the crazy guy who was the bricklayer. The problem was not that he held onto the rope. It was that he held onto the wrong rope. <laughs> so hold on to the future God has for you. And action number two is help the rest of us out in the process. Hang out with us. We need you. We need your encouragement. When you are with us, you stir things up, generally in a helpful way. And when you're stirring us up helpfully, we are encouraged to love God and people better, and we are encouraged to do good to others more. We need you. And finally, he says, in this new, different, and lifeful way of living, I want you to make sure that you have a habit of regularly getting together. Form the habit of gathering, because if you don't form the habit of gathering, by the way, you've done that today, good for you, you're here. If you don't form the habit of gathering, you will form the habit that some of your friends have, 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 have formed, which is scattering. So today you're here. You're working on the habit of gathering. And if we're not here regularly, we form the habit of scattering. A thoughtful life. Now, 
I'm going to quote a verse from Jesus. You're going to have it in just a moment. And by the way, it might be misreferenced there in your outline. It's actually Matthew 6, I think verse 24. And you'll recognize part of this verse because Jesus ends by saying, you can't serve both God and money. You familiar with that verse? Yeah, kind of interesting. What I want you to notice is that before he makes that application, that he actually gives us a principle of living a thoughtful life. Notice the verse that Jesus quotes here, that I quote from Jesus. It says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. By the way, the application of that principle, you can't serve two masters, that Jesus makes, you can't serve God and money, is a pretty good one for our society, don't you think? For the first time in human history, we have this dramatic general affluence in our culture to be able to have access to a thousand options and decisions that others have simply not had in the history of planet Earth. It's a remarkable thing. So for Jesus to make this point to us about God and money is a very important application for us. But for our purposes today, I want you to look at the principle. Here's the principle. Your life is a series of priority decisions. And you cannot have it all. Now, for those of you that are boomers like I am, I know that I just burst the boomer bubble. We're the only generation, as far as we know, in American history that actually believed that we could have it all. And we actually still believe that. We really think you can have it all. Our parents did not believe you could have it all. They believed the priority decisions had to be made and that you would have trade-offs. You choose this, you can't choose that. That's what Jesus said. The millennials, our kids, figured that out pretty soon. You can't have it all. And by the way, millennials figured that out right out of the womb. You cannot have it all. Your life will be a series of priority choices and you will have trade-offs. If you say yes to this, you won't be able to say yes to that. So to we boomers, Jesus said this. Here's the way it goes. And he uses stark, brash, blunt language that bothers me. When you make a priority decision, you are going to elevate one and you're going to love it and be devoted to it. By the way, devotion means when it goes into your calendar, you have just become devoted. If it's not in your calendar, it's still a good idea. If it's in your calendar, you've devoted something very precious, time. There's only two things that you have complete control over in your life. One is free will. You get to make your choices. God won't do it for you, and others want to, but you don't have to let them. And the other resource that you have is time. And when you put a commitment into your calendar, you are devoting that period of your life to this very precious thing that you have made a priority. And this is what Jesus says about it. You're loving it and devoting it. And in contrast to what you said no to to say yes to that, you're hating and you're despising. Wow. Life is a series of trade-offs. Now, the first Christians really had a handle on this. And you know, around here at Evergreen, we, we like to take a look at what the Bible says and whole about stuff. And we love it when we come to the book of Acts because it gives us some insight in how these first spirit-filled Christians acted and behaved, and we learned some things from them. And though I've only referenced a verse in 
Acts chapter 2, verse 42, I could have also referenced a verse in Acts chapter 4. And as the two go together, we really see what behaviors they decided to prioritize. This is what it says in Acts 2, 24. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So what did they do? They made a plan and they worked their plan. Their devotion, what they chose to put into the calendar first, had a lot to do with daily time with God, to be gathering together with others, to be engaged in an environment of prayer, and with generosity. They decided to group up in their homes. It sounds an awful lot like the Evergreen 4G network, God, gather, group, and give. You see, what they understood was that their new way of life required that they make some priority decisions if they were going to move forward into a life-giving and thoughtful way. Apparently, they believed the Bible. There's a verse in Proverbs chapter 24 that says this. Actually, it's 21, verse 5. And I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to ask all of you to join me in reading it out loud if you don't mind. It says this, The plans of the diligent lead to profit. Together, the plans of the diligent lead to profit. Here's the deal. God wants you to plan. And if you are a diligent planner with God, if you are a diligent planner, your life will end up with a return on investment, an ROI. God's purpose for you is more likely to be fulfilled. The mission that he has for you is more likely to be accomplished. The good plans that he has for you for summer 2016 are more likely to happen if you plan with him. The plans of the diligent lead to profit. Wow, good stuff, don't you think? The right answer is yes. Yeah, thank you very much. Love the feedback. Some great Bible to chew on. You've got the references that are there. Take that handout with you this week because you're going to want to spend some time with us. But let's shift to the second of our three parts today. And I'd like to make some observations that just spring right out of those verses. Now, these observations are not on your outline, and I don't haven't placed any room on your outline to write these. So I'm wanting to warn you, these are not the seven columns or the seven items that I have in two columns here. That's where we're going to wrap up. But just be aware of these, and if you want to jot them down someplace else, you can. These pump pop right out of the verses that we just read. Number one, let's learn something from the thoughtless guy. Just living life in the moment produces scarcity. If you've decided that you want to live life just spontaneously, the Bible says there are armed thieves that are just waiting to pounce on the schedule of your life and steal your time from you and put in your life things that the armed robber wants to put in your life. If you just live life in the moment, it'll lead towards scarcity. Number two, discover your new way of life. You are different. I hope in the best sense of the term. I like this quote from Dave Ramsey. If I could use his good Nashville, Tennessee, uh, what is that called? There are several words you've just applied to that. We'll go withdrawal. There we go. 
Let me tell you what he thinks you sound like. Here it is. If you live like no one else, later you can live like no one else. That was good. If you live like no one else, later you can live like no one else. And some of you have lived like no one else on rice and beans for a while following his recommendations. There we go. Number three, get a grip on what you want. Know what that future looks like. Hold on to that and hold on to that and let God's dreams and plans and prophecies over your life pull you into that future. You say, I have no idea what the future should look like. Your first assignment is figure that out with God so that you can hold on with him as he pulls you into it. Observation number four, stir up good stuff in others. Listen, we need you. And we need you at your best. And you're at your best when you're stirring stuff up. Specifically, stirring us up with the example of your life, with your encouragement, with your words, with your questions, to love God and people more, and to do good to others. Observation number five. Grow a habit of gathering. You will, you will develop a Sunday habit for yourself. And the habit will either be to gather or it will be to scatter. And if you have kids, you're the one who is responsible to decide which habit they're growing up with as well. Observation number six. Know why you are saying yes. And one of the most powerful ways to know if you know why you're saying yes is if you know why you're saying no to all of the opportunities coming your way so that you can say yes to this one. And observation number seven and last, plan. God wants you to. I think we heard it a couple of times this morning. The plans of the diligent lead to profit. Well, I'm glad you're seated. Because after seven years... I was going to say 11. It's been a long time. Some of you think it's 11. We've only been here, Ann and I, seven years. After seven years, I'm about to give you a secret. Are you ready for this? You're holding on to the front of the edge of your seats? Here's the secret. It's hard to be outing myself and to make a confession, but you're ready. Here it is. I plan. <laughs> That's the secret. <sighs> so hard to say that. What not all of you know is that I have a five-year plan. It's a Google Calendar plan, and not surprisingly, it doesn't have a creative name. It's called Five Years. That's what it is. So I've decided that why not take the next 1,825 days and go ahead and plan them. There's some things in my life that are fairly important, so I've just gone ahead and put them there. I, I can go to my calendar and tell you where I'm planning to be in the next 260 Sundays. For the next 1,825 days, I know when I'm going to get up. I know what I'm going to do for the first hours in the day. I've scheduled the next 260 days off because Ann and I have struggled for life in having a day off, but we believe that that Sabbath rest is important. So I've gone ahead and put the pillar of those in my calendar for the next five years. I can tell you to the date and the hours, the next 20 days that I'll be taking a quarterly half day to get away with God and do some planning for the quarter that's coming up. Hmm. I know pretty much when, how much, and how Ann and I are going to give financially to Evergreen because we've made that 
calculation and generalizations and just gone ahead and set it up in bill pay. So if I don't change banks, it's already set up in the account. Why wouldn't I just go ahead and set up financial giving for the next five years? It makes sense to me. You see, this is the deal. I intend to be in a weekly small group over the next 260 weeks. I don't know exactly when that's going to be, but I've chosen a day and a time of day that I prefer, and I've just gone ahead and put in those 200 plus weeks. And when life happens and I actually make the decision about what that time is, all I have to do in that week is just shift the time from here to there. I decided that I can plan my life, or others can, but it might be kind of cool if I got the first shot at it. And as an evergreener and a 4G uh, network person, my time with God, my time gathering, my time with group, and the way that I'm going to be giving, and a week, a time each week to refresh, just seem to be smart things to go ahead and drop in to a calendar. Now, I was motivated to plan uh, out of three major sources er- earlier in my life. And just briefly, I want to mention them. The first one, not surprisingly, is the Bible. I actually read the Bible, and I believe it. And it says a lot about planning, including the plans of the diligent lead to profit. And I would rather, at the end of the day, that my marriage be profitable, that my family have a return on investment, that the way I engage my life professionally would have a return, that my personal development and academic pursuits would have some return, not only in my life, but plenty to splash out on others as well. I read the Bible, I believe the Bible, I plan. A second couple of interesting anecdotal things were, 27 years ago, I was having a conversation with Dr. Ted Roberts. Some of you know him or know of him. At that time, he was the lead pastor at East Hill Church in Gresham. And we were a part of the same organization, and, and uh, we were doing some planning for the future, and, uh, and Ted was really quite upset with me. And he said, why don't you guys plan out in advance more? And I said, well, what's the deal? You're asking for a date nine months from now. Who knows what's going to happen between now and nine months? We'll try to get this to you at least six months in advance, thinking that we were very generous. And he was disgusted. And he said, I'm planning things on my calendar seven years from now. And it's very difficult for me to wait around for you guys to tell me what I'm supposed to be doing six months from now. And I left going... He's crazy, number one. And secondly, why does he associate with people that tell him what he's going to be doing seven years in advance? I don't have any friends like that. And then it dawned on me. He doesn't have anyone in his life planning his life seven years in advance. That's precisely the point. He got a jump on all of those armed thieves that want to come and steal his time. And he decided that he was going to put the important things in first. Now, do I happen to know that life happens before I tell you the third anecdote? That things don't always happen as planned? Hey, listen, I live in the real world. I understand. We don't have a blueprint. But can I also just mention that the Bible says the plans of the diligent lead to profit? Your good planning does not guarantee that your life is going to go according to your plan. But it does suggest this. Your life is going to be more profitable if you plan than if you don't. The third anecdote is kind of funny. I read a book back in those days by then-GE CEO Jack Welsh. It was entitled 
control your own destiny or someone else will. By the way, don't look for the book. It's out of print, and even if you got it, it's not that good. But the title is worth keeping on our library at home in the office. Control your own destiny or someone else will. Others have said it this way, quote, if you don't design your own life plan, chances are you'll fall into someone else's plan. And guess what they have planned for you? Not much. I love that. And Michael Hyatt, in his excellent recent book called Living Forward, A Proven Plan to Stop uh, Drifting and to Get the Life You Want, writes, if you don't have a plan for your life, someone else does. Before we make uh, some personal application choices and move on, I want to just illustrate from one uh, area of life that in the last 15 years, our culture has just gone crazy on and made reference to it last week. And um, you'll, pick up, you'll pick up from the spirit and the tone that I'm not cranky or grumpy at all. I'm just aware of this area, and you're thoughtful about it too, because it so beautifully illustrates the choices that we are given to make our priorities from among. I know you. You don't make choices between a good thing and a bad thing. That's not where we choose, is it? We make choices from among a series of good things. And what makes choices particularly difficult is that we tend to make choices on the base from a list of very good things. So because we live in relative affluence, we have access to lots of options, all of which are good. How do we prioritize those in a way that puts our pillars of life in the calendar first so we're devoted to the things that are really important for us to live life on purpose and mission and then be able to ask questions around the edges, what spaces are available for other good options. You'll notice this. Many of you will identify with this, especially if you're parents of kids. I'm quoting from John O'Sullivan, who writes for Coaching Magazine. He is a passionate athlete. It's an athletic family. He professionally writes for sports and for coaches. And if there's a credible source to talk about this, it might be him. In March 2014, he wrote an article called The Race to Nowhere in Youth Sports. Listen, the hardest thing about raising kids these days when it comes to sports is that the vast majority of parents are leading their kids down the wrong path. They love their kids, but the social pressure to follow that path is incredible. Even though my wife and I were both collegiate athletes, athletes, I spend every day reading the research, studying the latest science on the subject, and writing professionally about it as a passionate sports person. The pressure for our family is intense. The sports path many parents are following is due to fear. He puts that in caps. He says, we're scared that if we don't have our child specialized, if we don't get extra coaching or give up our entire family life for youth sports, our child will get left behind. And he says, even though almost every parent that I talk to me tells me that in their gut, they have this feeling that running their children ragged isn't helpful, we really don't see an alternative. Another kid will take his place. Another kid will get her best coach. He says, this system sucks for parents, for coaches, for kids. So why not take a stand? Why don't we stop being sheep, following others down a 
Road to nowhere that both science and common sense tells us often ends badly. Don't be scared. Stand up for your kids. We've been quiet too long. We've been afraid to speak up and take a stand. He says we're far too willing to throw out our children's present for some ill-fated quest for a better future that rarely materializes. Hmm. Now, I read that, and I get a stomachache about that because it's so tough, isn't it? That's what's tough. What about that is wrong? Kids' sports are fantastic. It's so important. And when you begin to list the values and the virtues and the opportunities and the good potential benefits that come out of that venue for kids' experience, don't you resonate and say, yes, and then maybe find your life situation and experience wondering at times what is driving the family schedule. And that is a hard, hard reality to work through. Now, I told you that I would read a story about a sports family, but that simply illustrates what is true of all of us in a whole variety of venues in life. We wish that there was just one competing large area of life, but we have these competing priorities that come our way. And some of us would say, I'm just going to give in and not plan and let life follow its own path. Merrily, merrily down the stream. But the stream always has a waterfall. I didn't need to do that with that wonderful song. Here we go. So let's make some application as we tie it up today. Maybe you'll want to take the handout. And I'm going to invite you to do two things. And you're just going to start in the next few minutes and later today or tomorrow, you're going to go ahead and finish it out. And as you do, you're going to create a plan for a missional summer. First step, identify areas of your life that are most important to you and list them there under life accounts. Matthew 6, actually verse 24, we read, Jesus talks about you can't have two masters. And of course, the genius of choosing only five priority life accounts are because you probably have someplace between 40 and 75 roles in life. So it requires that you identify those that are most important. Let me give you just a quick list of 15 to kind of stimulate your thinking about that. There would be bank accounts to invest in like God, spouse, children, education, health, career, friends, vacation, charity, community, church, financial, recreational, intellectual, hobbies. And how many of you, like me, are saying, I want all 15? Of course. So, which seven are pillars of your life that go in first? Hmm. The hard, hard work of creating a purposeful life, of deciding what really, really matters in a world with many, many good options. A second thing you'll do is, in thinking about this time frame of the next three months, is you'll list some actions this summer. So as it relates to that area of life, specifically, what will you do to act on it? Because it's only wishful thinking until it becomes an action step. What am I going to do this summer to actually do the things that will help me be more purposeful? And then on the other side, take those actions and drop them, number three, into your calendar as commitments. And once they go into the calendar, 
you have become, here's the Bible word, devoted. When you set aside the most precious resource of your life, which is time, to do into the future something that's important to you, you have just become devoted to that thing. And after you list on a daily basis, and then across the course of months, in the next three months, what you are planning to do to have a purposeful and missional life, then find a partner that you'll buddy up with this summer, that you'll share that information with, and that will help you, hold you accountable, and you can to him or her as well as you move forward. And last week, toward the end of her talk, part one of this two-part series, read a beautiful vision about what she saw September 1st as a result of her life. It was a prophetic vision as she with God thought and dreamed about that and as she talked about areas of her life and the things that she would do and the outcomes that she anticipated seeing happening. The plans of the diligent lead to profit. I had coffee this last week with uh, one of the Evergreen guys and was just talking about their life. Uh, they're, they're a crazy sports and recreation family. Uh, coach, coaches, parents, and athletes, kids, and, and uh, blessed, you know, have a, have a vacation cabin and have toys in the garage here and have toys in the garage there. And I'm smiling because some of you are saying, I didn't have coffee with him, and he may be talking about us. I don't know. So I was just asking, how was it that you as a family organize and plan your life. In fact, it was kind of a goodbye coffee because I know that we're not going to see them for the next several weeks, six or eight weeks or so, because they're able to go off. And how do you organize your life? Hmm. I don't know that you'll do what they do, but I loved hearing what he said because I think the thoughtful approach to how to organize a summer might be encouraging for you as it was for me. He said, well, our family's decided that we can develop four habits. So we have four habits in our family. These four habits are the pillars that hold our family together. And everything we do in our family is built around these four pillars. I'm curious. What are the four pillars? He said, well, the four pillars are two habits that we do daily and two habits that we do as a family every week. The daily habits are we pray and read the Bible. And every week we attend church and the kids go to youth group. And I'm waiting for something profound. And he says, that's it. We can only handle the four habits. So I said, well, what does it look like when you're away and you're at the cabin in the mountains and you do the summer? He said, well, what we've done is we found a great church and we're a part of church there. So we just do our habits. We just always do our habits. Every day we pray and we read the Bible and every week we gather and the kids go to youth group. I thought, what an amazing four pillars. My question for you, I don't know what you do. I don't know what you'll do. My question for you, what are the pillars around which you're building your future life? It's not so hard to go to five years if you do this for three months. And by the way, I don't know that you'll want to go to five years. You will truly join me as being an eccentric person if you have a five-year calendar. But I'm not as weird as Ted Roberts. I just want you to know he's out there at seven years. But the question is, what pillars are you going into the future where you have this future hope that God's planned for you and you're identifying 
what you and God are building toward and you snag some devoted time out there in that future and you pull a rope tight to it and you say, whatever comes my way and a lot will come my way I didn't plan for. I can count on this. Jesus and me are regularly pulling my way toward those outcomes. You have an exciting opportunity. A couple of days, June 1st is going to roll around. The next couple of days between now and then, you can craft a purposeful summer 2016. A summer in which every minute has a mission attached to it. A summer schedule which, of course, has all kinds of open space with spontaneity and wonderful opportunities that will come your way. You will not become a rigid person in doing this. But at the end of the summer, you can look back and you can say, this summer was lived for God, with God, on purpose. That's my hope for you. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you tell us that you have plans for us. Thank you. And thank you for telling us to plan with you. We take that seriously. Holy Spirit, would you give us insight today and this week? Would you give us prophetic understanding, pictures, glimpses, hints, nudges about what you're up to in our life? Don't leave us alone in this path of planning. It's not our life we're planning. It's your life for us we're planning. As you give us those glimpses, would you give us the faith, the faith that comes with conviction to go ahead and make the courageous decision to devote time in the future toward things that are really important. And at the end of this summer, Lord, on September the 1st, may we look back over the last 90 days and say, God was all over that summer. It was full of purpose and his mission was done. Help us, Lord, be thoughtful with you for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.